Alright, so we're in prophetic grappling. We got to the third chapter. Before I forget, next week we don't have a second gathering. Okay? Next weekend, holiday weekend, no gathering. Got it? Sheikh Musliman is traveling, so makes sense. Exceedingly difficult. So we're on part three. Part three is on objectives of sports and Islam. Objectives of sports and Islam. I think that generally we've covered a lot uh, of what we've, like a lot of what's mentioned in the section we've kind of covered already. So I'm not going to rehash all of it. I'll just make some extra points here and there and then we'll continue inshallah. So we'll go through each section piece by piece. So from the objectives of sports in Islam, number one is military function. Number one is military function. If that sounds awkward to you, you probably haven't been here the last couple of weeks. Because <laughs> we've kind of like worked this out over the last couple of weeks, alhamdulillah, where we've talked about it in a lot of detail and we've kind of bounced different ideas and worked through them and talked about them and so on and so forth. But there is a reality to sports being a means by which people make themselves stronger and that strength helps them in cases where they might need it it's pretty straightforward you know um, sometimes that is necessary in life you know sometimes that is necessary in life the Quran there's of course a verse in the Quran that talks about and prepare against them whatever you are able to of strength and of horses tethered by which you may terrify the enemy of God and your enemy and others beside them who you do not know but whom God knows, and whatever you spend in the cause of God will be fully repaid to you, and you will not be wronged. Quran 8.60 okay. So, part of the reality of the time of the message of the Prophet especially in the period in Medina, is that they have enemies. Right? So, it's, you know, as we've kind of belabored in the last couple of weeks, it's very important that we don't uh, paint an inaccurate understanding of our current lives nor of the lives of people in the past based on our limited experiences you know it's very important like I was listening to a class with the Sheikh recently and he was saying you know this hadith where the Prophet says that he would wake up some mornings and he would go and ask his wife do we have any food and she would say no and then he would say okay I'm going to fast today and he said we hear the hadith and we're like okay you know mashallah he fasted and that means the rule is that that means if you wake up and you haven't had anything to eat in the day that would break your fast and even though it's past Fajr time you're gonna make the intention to fast he's like but you're missing a lot if you just think about that and you don't think about look at the reality of the life of the Prophet you know like we wake up we assume all kinds of things so I'm gonna have this and I'm gonna have that and then I'm gonna have I have three different options for the coffee that I'm gonna have for breakfast and if I don't like those, then I'll just go get one from outside. And if I open my tea drawer, there's 20 different options. And I have a couple of things I'm going to do for breakfast, a couple of things I could do for lunch, a couple of things I could do for dinner. And like, we just, that's the life we live, right? But then what happens is we lose sight of, that's not the life that he lives. He woke up, do we have food? It's not assumed that there's even food in the house. 
<laughs> any of it, any food, not like some little thing here or that or something you don't feel like or whatever. It's not assumed that there's any food at all. So you wake up and say, do we have anything? No, we don't have anything? Okay, I'm going to fast. So for us, like, we run the risk always of I have a particular life experience and I'm going to paint everything with that life experience. That's why, especially for American Muslims, it's really good to travel. It's really good to travel. Like, go different places. See different people. See the way that they live. See the way that... Even go to, like, Muslim places, you know? Some things you're going to like, some things you're not going to like. But it's good to see that. Right? It's good to, like, have these different experiences and, uh, you know, just think about civilization and life and so on. So that, you know, when you live in relative peace, and you hear a verse like this, but the verse is really interesting, actually. Saying, prepare for them. So you're in the context, again, of war. And you're being told, prepare for them what you can of force, essentially. And that force will be a deterrent to those who are your enemies. The ones you know and the ones you don't know. So, sometimes it's like, I know one of the, one of the, you know, sometimes there's security that you do for spaces and stuff, right? So things like, if you just put certain things up, even if they don't work, some people put like a camera up, right? They don't even connect the camera to anything, but just the existence of the camera serves as a deterrent. Right? Certain things, like there's all kinds of deterrents, and there's all kinds of invitations. So the verse is saying basically like, be do what you need to do from developing your strength, and that's going to deter your enemies that you know. It's also going to deter enemies that you don't know, because there's oftentimes enemies that we don't know. Uh, the actual casualties in the battles of the companions of the Prophet them are actually very limited. Um, as we mentioned last time, some biographies give different numbers on that. But, you know, we're talking about at most probably a couple thousand people over the course of dozens of years of battles, right? Which is not actually very many. Um, but this was the nature of the life that they lived in. They also, of course, had wrestling, which we'll come to later. Um, but there's uh, one of the things that's said here from Imam Sharani, which is interesting. He says about this, um, there's, you know, the narration I mentioned to you that there was a man in the time of the Prophet ﷺ that he was known like he could stand on a piece of cloth and nobody would be able to move him. Like they tried to pull the leather, nobody could get him off the leather. But the Prophet was able to get him off. And uh, Imam Sharani, he says about this, that this covenant was taken with the Prophet that we would not become heedless through neglecting to learn the martial arts, such as archery, racing, self-defense, and the like. Thereafter, that we would not abandon them after having taught, uh, after having taught the aforementioned, so that we would not lose our mastery in that regard. Few pay proper attention to this covenant. So this work of Imam Sharani is a book on uh, the different covenants that we have taken from the Prophet Sallallahu Taken a covenant to be generous, we've taken a covenant to be brave, so on and so forth. So this is one of these covenants is the covenant to be prepared for things that might come up. And that's something that people are sometimes uh, negligent in regards to. When this, this in the Arabic was called Furusiya. Furusiya is like, um, I don't know how you would translate it in English, how, what they called it here, but like, like the, the, it refers to a horse, right? So if you're, if, if you're, um, 
training to it's basically like you're training in the arts of battle and stuff like that so they would it would include different things so for example it says they would understand like chain of command they'd understand discipline they understand the different things that you would need for battle so on and so forth and there's some conversation around that uh, so what are some of the disciplines that they would know so it says the arts most notably notably practiced alongside grappling at the time of the messenger of allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam as they relate to their practical application in warfare include archery we talked about a lot uh, the prophet said you must use archery for it is good for him who engages in warfare the second thing that they used to train in was swordsmanship and spear fighting the prophet was a formidable swordsman um, and he, he had many swords actually so several of his personal swords have been preserved to this day and it was his habit to name his possessions and they include a number of different names. Uh, you know, one that he inherited from his father and many names, you know, they're, they're um, how should I say, appropriately named for swords. We won't say all of them and translate all of them, but they're appropriately named for what they're used for. And he was also skilled in the use of the spear, sallallahu alayhi wa uh, the Prophet them in the battle of uh, Uhud, there was a man who charged at the Prophet them and he ordered them to clear the way. And uh, the Prophet them jumped up in a manner that left the companions in awe and forced them to move out of the way. And he threw his spear at this person, Obey. Um, so, uh, I'll read you the story. It's an interesting story. Obey galloped forward. The Prophet وسلم, jumped up in a manner that left the companions in awe and forced them to move out of the way. The Prophet وسلم, struck his spear with utmost precision into the clavicle of Obey, leaving minimal damage and no blood. Upon falling off his horse, Obey was surrounded by his comrades who mockingly said, What is ailing you? It is only a scratch. But he reminded them of what the Messenger of Allah وسلم, had said, that he will kill Obey. Uh, he said, If he would hit me with anything, it would actually be the end of my life. And he died on his way back to Mecca. Uh, so, you know, sometimes this is actually also part of the Sunnah of the Prophet. We don't have to whitewash everything. They went to battles and they were killed and they were tortured. So, like, it shouldn't be strange to you that they went to battles. Like, it's, it's life. Uh, another thing that they would train is in horse, horsemanship, you know, learning to ride horses, learning to control horses, and so on. And also uh, swimming was also emphasized by the Prophet Someone will say, well, how is he talking, you know, how is he talking about swimming when they lived in the middle of the desert? So what, they can't have like ponds and lakes and can't, like an oasis can't have a pond because they're in the middle of the desert? Yeah, still learn, you can still encourage swimming. Another emphasis for these, martial, these uh, sports in the time of the Prophet was for social and communal recreation. Obviously, one of the benefits of sports is that it's recreation, right? Like, you do it, you have some fun, you take your mind off whatever else is going on. Uh, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi they used to have foot races, they used to have horse races, stuff like this in the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. We talked about before the Abyssinians who were playing with the spears in the Masjid of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam on the day of Eid. And, of course, the grappling that used to happen on different occasions and stuff like that. And we also talked about how there used to be, like, an emphasis on this from some of the um, rulers and things later on They used to have like Futuwa clubs right? um, Where people would Engage in uh, you know, These different things and, and train in wrestling And, and trying to be um, 
in shape and stuff like that, and the different things that we talked about already. Um, the Ottomans facilitated viable means to learn and teach wrestling in village communities across the empire. The Turkish word for the palace in which wrestling, or the place in which wrestling takes place, is tekke, which is the same word used to describe a, to describe a Sufi lodge. Each Ottoman community had its own wrestling champion, a rich man or a committee associated with the local church or mosque, provided the champion with room and board in return for training the community's wrestlers. This training usually took place on property owned by a church, mosque, or Sufi order. At the local level, contests took place on feast days and at weddings. A youth who did not wrestle was unlikely to be respected by his peers or marry well. Interesting quote, huh? This is from Thomas Green. Martial Arts of the World, an Encyclopedia of History and Innovation. Fascinating. Uh, beyond the camaraderie shared between sports teammates, grappling engenders an immediate sense of brotherhood and companionship. The connection one experiences when grappling with another person is unique and deeply rooted, often cementing lifelong friendships. If it, it is this experience that made ancient Fatula clubs or communal rites of passage successful and intimately unforgettable. There's a quote here that he puts from some book on jujitsu. It says, you release the lock, you and your opponent make eye contact. You both smile and thank each other for the role. That's like what they call when they spawn. A certain understanding passes between you. You know him in a way that his co-workers and civilian friends never know. It's true. Okay, next section. One of the next benefit of sports and so on is skillful mastery. Skillful mastery. The Prophet said, "In Allah, you hibu ida amila ahadukum amalan and yutqina." That the Prophet said that Allah loves for someone if they do something, that they do it with excellence. That if they do something, they do it with excellence. So, obviously, training in sports and stuff like that it teaches us this actually, and it teaches us in ways that are very tangible, because even outside of the fighting sports and the fighting sports, it's definitely very tangible. Um, but you very intimately understand the limitations of your absence of excellence when you're competing, right? Like some, sometimes someone just, they trained harder. Sometimes people are just better. But some people, they just trained harder. And because they trained harder, you feel the consequences of it, whatever it might be. Um, and this was the way, this is, you know, it's interesting because sometimes we have a trend in the Muslim community sometimes that's very kind of like just get it done however it needs to get it's like very minimalist not in a good way <laughs> it's like cut every single corner and then just like whatever comes out at the end is what comes out at the end and I get it like you know there's a humility in that and there's a um, economy in that but at the same time that's not really going to build a civilization. And part of what we're trying to do with the teachings of the Prophet is not just get by, but build civilization. And so when you think about this hadith of Allah loves, if we do something that we do it well, to really think about that in that understanding. So for example, it is this itqan, this excellence, that helped the likes of Ibn Qasim Khalif ibn Abbas al-Zahrawi to invent over 200 surgical tools used in medicine in the 10th century that are still being used today. It pushed on Buruni to discuss the theory of the Earth rotating on its own axis 600 years before Galileo, and drove in Khawarizmi in the 9th century to discover algebra. Many of Islam's architectural, ge geographical, and technological advances were born out of a type of precise and complete pursuit of mastery of one's craft. 
Quote, uh, in a Muslim civilization that stretched from Spain to China, the golden rays of discovery and invention shone over everything. Through scholars and scientists of various faiths, some of the most important discoveries known to man were made at this time. And what is it coming out of? It's coming out of like if you do something, you do it right. It is regrettable that in the current age of endless distraction and instant gratification that the concept and pursuit of mastery is no longer given much thought. Lamentable given the extent some of the most luminous figures of Islamic history devoted to master not only their scholarly, but also their martial pursuits. Take, for example, the great Imam Muhammad ibn Idris al-Shafi'i, one of the founders of the four great Sunni schools of sacred law. He is heralded as having laid the foundations of Islamic jurisprudence, a linguistic specialist, and inspiring poet. Yet he was also a master of archery and is reported to have had some accuracy, had such accuracy so as to write his name in shooting arrows. It's pretty cool. <clears throat> uh, and so, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll see this. There are many different scholars who were adept in these different things, and we talked about some of that uh, in the past as well. This is different than the, the, the master is different than the dabbler. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting actually, he spends a little bit of time on this because there, there is a spiritual issue here. Like there's a spiritual issue to mastering things versus just kind of dabbling in them. You know, do a little bit here and there. <coughs> mm, listen to this for example. Remaining on this path of mastery, drawing on due parallels to any worthy endeavor, is a great challenge which claims many lives. The symbolic death of the samurai was pronounced not when he was killed on battlefield fighting the enemy in combat, but when he stopped traversing the path, no longer training to attain mastery. When you stop your pursuit of the arts, you are as good as dead. Instead, sadly, sadly we find many dip their toes in the water with great enthusiasm, having researched every conceivable aspect of the art, only to give up after a few short sessions or injuries, quote-unquote, this is indicative of what George Leonard calls the dabbler, which typifies most modern participants. When he makes his first spurt of progress in a new sport, for example, the dabbler is overjoyed. He demonstrates his form to family, friends, and people he meets on the street. He can't wait for the next lesson. The fall off from his first peak comes as a shock. The plateau that follows is unacceptable, if not incomprehensible. His enthusiasm quickly wanes. He starts missing lessons. His mind fills up with rationalizations. This really isn't the sport for him. It's too competitive, non-competitive, non aggressive, non-aggressive, boring, dangerous, whatever. He tells everyone that it just doesn't fulfill his unique needs. Starting another sport gives the dabbler a chance to replay the scenario of starting up. Maybe he'll make it to the second plateau this time. Maybe not. Then it's on to something else. Part of the dabbler is that it's a very nafsani thing. Right? It's a very like base self thing. You just try it, and then you give it up. You just try it, and you give it up. So what is it? It's not about... There's no discipline of the nafs in it. So we had talked about before how training in martial arts and stuff like that has an element in it that relates to disciplining the nafs, which is essential to Islamic spirituality. And Allah give us tawfiq. Hmm. For example, he says, this struggle exists within all realms of life. Mastery is not that path which knows not defeat or failure, but rather engenders deep pursuit despite it. Query the qari about his commitment to the precise and eloquent recital of the Book of God, the learning and articulation of each letter and associated vowels, the lengthening of the medud, uh, the memorization and application of the sacred rules of tajweed. We will inform you that the mastery of recitation is unattainable. 
and despite its pursuits being pursuit being immensely rewarding, is a lifelong endeavor. So they spend their whole life in it. Our teacher in Arabic used to say, um, he used to say, "La naqulu inna fulan a'lam min fulan fi lughat al-Arabiya, inna fulan a'lam min fulan fi lughat al-Arabiya, naqulu inna fulan." He said, we don't say that so-and-so is more knowledgeable than so-and-so in the Arabic language. We say so-and-so is less ignorant than so-and-so in the Arabic language. <laughs> you catch the distinction? Like, this one's not more knowledgeable than that one. But this one is less ignorant than that one. Because the Arabic language is an ocean that doesn't end. SubhanAllah, it's an amazing language. Another benefit of sports is the refreshment of body and soul. Right? So part of trying to attain some level of balance in our lives is that we need some things to, um, that will refresh us. And we can think about them that way. You know? um, we can think about them that way. Because you need that in order to round things out. And um, one of the early Muslims used to say, I seek aid in leisure for worship. I seek aid in leisure for worship. Meaning like I take that leisure break, it refreshes me, so now I can go back to doing what I'm doing. The default is that you're doing something for some meaning and some purpose, something good, something great, so on and so forth. And sometimes we need breaks in order to give us the strength that we need to go back to it. That's the proper ordering. Not I just spend my whole life doing nothing useful playing and laughing and joking and eating and drinking and sleeping and doing whatever else and then every now and then I'll try to do something useful and if I do then I'm patting myself on the back that mashallah I did so much and I took a break from my play in order to do this great thing that's the wrong structuring of the life um, but this was something that was understood by the ancients you know the, the ancient Greeks the ancient philosophers it was understood by an uh, American uh, you know culture it was understood you have to have some sort of break. Um, in order to give us that strength that we need to go on. Here you go. The blessed companion of the Messenger of God, وسلم, Abu Darda, said, I entertain my heart with something trivial in order to make it stronger in the service of the truth. It's a beautiful statement, actually. I entertain my heart with something trivial in order to make it stronger in the service of the truth. Okay. Next benefit of sports is self-defense. Next benefit of the sport, sports and everything else is self-defense. It is without doubt that the men and women around the Messenger of Allah belong to a warrior nation. They were people well equipped and co with confrontation and warfare. Uh, again, there's a balance in this, right? Like You don't want to become too crazy and hardened and stuff like that. But there's a reason why, as we mentioned before, people in business and stuff like that study the, the art of war. And there's a reason for it. Because there's strategy and there's wisdom and there's strength and things that people, a person learns that they can use for other areas of life. Okay? So this is also something that uh, is beneficial and important. Perhaps through walking the physical path of the Prophet them, we uncover a spiritual means to gain closeness to the one whom he calls us to. And that we grapple with that wisdom wherever we find it, and we may find it as we deservedly should, to seek his pleasure, proximity, and reward. 
An even stronger argument could be made to practice other, more applicable martial arts within the grappling genre, which would further enhance practicality in a combative situation. So he ends on this point. So all of that then leads us to the transition of the um, small piece of Imam Suyuti. So we mentioned before in the beginning that this work is a set of comments from the translator, and uh, not the translator actually, from the author. And then there's this um, essay of sorts, you could say, of Imam Suyuti uh, that comes at the end. It's called the Musara'a Ilan Musara'a. It's a play on words, but it's basically about wrestling. So in it, in Imam Suyuti, who died in 9-11 after Hijra, he makes mention of a number of narrations from the Prophet that have some sort of emphasis or comment on the idea of wrestling. Okay, some of them are going to be more authentic, some of them are going to be less authentic. Perhaps I should read the intro portion. Uh, this was written by Imam Suyuti. It appears to be the only classical treatise on wrestling of the Messenger of God and his companions. Imam Suyuti was like this. You know, he's 9-11 after Hijra. He basically just wrote in everything. Like he, he, I don't even remember how many books he wrote, but it was some huge, outrageously huge number. But many of them are small like this. You know? This thing's about 18 hadith. It's very short. But he brought these 18 hadith from all of the different collections of hadith and put them together without a computer, which takes a lot more effort than it does now, right? Now you just open the thing and you put in one word, and then it brings you all of the narrations that have to do with that word, right? So they didn't have that back then. You have to have books upon books upon books. You probably copy them yourself by hand. You have to look through them page by page by page. It's a lot of work, actually. It's uh, which reminds me of a, of a side point. Imam Suyuti, sometimes people would accuse him of plagiarism. Okay? Uh, there's sometimes when you read in the Islamic tradition, you think like, subhanAllah, they're copying exactly what someone else said. And for a while, I thought like, maybe there's some sort of plagiarism that they don't have an issue with or something. But my tendency now is to believe that it's not actually plagiarism, but what it is is that these people memorize so many texts that like if you memorize book after book after book after book after book, when you sit down to write, what's going to come out? Stuff that you've memorized, right? So it's not necessarily that you're like intentionally copying someone else's work and not giving credit to them, but that things might come up with that. In any case, all right, hadith number one. An Abi Jafar ibn Muhammad ibn Ali ibn Rukana an Abihi. An Rukana sara an Nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam, fasara'ahu an Nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam. On the authority of Abu Jafar ibn Muhammad ibn Ali ibn Rukana. So he's like what? One, two, three, like great grandson maybe of Rukana, the one who wrestled the Prophet. He says, on the authority of his father Rukana, that he wrestled the Messenger of God and the Messenger of God took him down. Hadith number two says, uh, also, on the authority of Muhammad ibn Rukana, who narrates that his father, Rukana, wrestled the Messenger of God, وسلم, and he took him down. Narrations 1 and 2 firmly established the prophetic practice of grappling. Details of this encounter can be found in the following narrations. So sometimes they'll mention one more than one narration because maybe it comes from a different source. Right? So, it's okay. Um, by the way, a little bit of noise from kids is acceptable here. If you're new, you might not know that. But we're okay with that. And as long as, if it gets like too much to the point that it's super distracting or something, that's one thing. But just like little simple noises here and there, the noise they make is better than the noise I make. So, alhamdulillah. 
Hadith number three. On the authority of Ibn Ishaq, radiallahu anhu, the scholar of prophetic biography and battles related, the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, said to Rukana, Abdi Yazid, uh, Ibn Abdi Yazid, yeah. Uh, accept Islam. He replied, had I considered what you say to be true, I would have done it. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, then said to Rukana, the strongest one of the strongest people, if I were to take you down, would you consider Islam to be true? He replied, yes. So the Messenger of Allah وسلم, stood up to wrestle him and took him down. He said to him again, uh, he said to him, again, O Muhammad, the Messenger of God وسلم, thus stood once more and for a second time wrestled him to the ground. Rukana then left saying, This is a sorcerer. I've never seen such sorcery. I swear by God, I had absolutely no control over myself when you took me to the ground. Okay. There's another narration uh, that says that he accepted Islam in the year of the conquest of Mecca uh, and died in Medina during the Caliphate of Muawiyah. Uh, this duel is initiated upon the skepticism of faith. It is probable that this discussion of accepting Islam between them may have occurred on a previous occasion. So, you know, there's a conversation. They know each other, they talk to each other, and then eventually he tells them, like, what if I wrestle you and I defeat you, you know? Then what? What are you going to do? So they had this interaction. Here's another narration about Rukana. On the authority of Rukana ibn Abdi Yazid, one of the strongest people he relates, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, and I would graze a flock of sheep belonging to Abu Talib in the initial days when he saw me. He وسلم, said to me one day, would you like to wrestle me? I retorted, you? He replied, yes, me. I asked him for what? He replied, for a sheep from the flock. So I wrestled him and he took me down. He then took a sheep from me. Then he asked me, would you like another round? I replied, yes. So I wrestled him and he took me down. He then took a sheep from me. I began looking around anxiously to see if anyone saw me. He asked, what's the matter with you? I replied, no shepherd should see me, for if they do, they will become emboldened against me, even though they know I am one of the strongest in my clan. He asked, would you like a third round and a sheep? I replied, yes. So I wrestled him, he took me down, and thereafter took a sheep. I sat down broken and in despair. He thus asked, what's the matter? I replied, I will return to Abdi Yazid, having given away three of his sheep. Secondly, I certainly thought I was the strongest of Quraysh. He asked, would you like a fourth round? I replied, no, not after the three. So he said, as for what you have said regarding the sheep, I will return them to you. Thereupon he returned them to me. When his matter, the prophecy manifested not much later, I came to him and accepted Islam. From the guidance God gave me is that I knew he did not throw me down that day by his own strength, but rather that he threw me down on that day with someone else's strength. Well, this is an interesting narration. Um... You don't want to do like uh... so. I'm gonna read some of this because it's interesting. The renowned traditionist Abdul Hayyim Katani, in his work Taratib al Idariya, commenting on this narration, mentions that this apparent wager is to be understood as from the elect allowances of the Messenger of God وسلم, and not to be misconstrued as gambling or betting. Uh, of the different narrations, some indicate that wager was some more sheep, less sheep, whatever it might be. What is noteworthy about this narration is from a grappler's perspective, is that the Prophet what he was able to do cannot have been by chance. So like if you defeat someone once, maybe there was some random chance thing that happened. But if you defeat them multiple times like this, then this is an indication of the actual mastery of the Prophet وسلم, of the art form itself. Hadith number five. Uh, Again, some of these are going to be stronger and weaker, but they indicate to us the importance of wrestling nonetheless. 
On the authority of Abu Umama, who said that, there was a man from Banu Hashem named Rukana. He was one of the strongest and deadliest men and a polytheist. He used to graze his sheep in a valley called Idum. The Messenger of Allah went out one day and headed toward Idum, where he was met by Rukana alone. So Rukana came towards him and said, O Muhammad, are you the one that insults our gods and call unto your almighty and all-wise God? If it wasn't for the blood relationship between you and me, I would have killed you without even uttering a word to you. However, I invite you to call unto your God uh, to save you from me today. Let me make a proposal. What do you think about me wrestling you with you calling upon your Lord and me calling upon our gods? If you overcome me, then I will give you from these sheep of mine ten of your choice. Thereupon the Prophet them said, If that's what you want, they wrestled and the Prophet defeated him. Uh, and he made dua to his idols and then stood up and the Prophet defeated him again. And uh, they went again basically. And it kept happening over and over again. Upon hearing about the encounter, Abu Bakr and Omar said, O Messenger of God, you threw down Rukana? We swear by he who sent you with the truth, we do not know of anyone who ever threw him down. The Prophet said, I sought help from my Lord. He has aided me with the potency and strength of ten men. Story. Narration number six. On the authority of Abdullah bin Masood said that a man met a devil in one of the alleys of Mundina, whom he wrestled and defeated. The devil said, Leave me and I will tell you something you will like. So the man left him. The devil then said, Do you recite Surah Al Baqarah? The man replied, Yes. The devil said, If the devil hears any of it, he runs away, breaking will do like that of a donkey. This narration is extremely debated. Put it that way. It was then asked of Ibn Masood, Who is that man? He replied, Omar bin Khattab. Meaning that Omar ibn Khattab, take the point, Omar ibn Khattab wrestled with Shaitan and defeated him. Like I said, the point of the collection is not to mention like all of the strongest narrations. The point of the collection is to bring together different narrations that emphasize the importance of wrestling. Right? Um, we know, of course, that Omar was a formidable wrestler. Narration number seven on the authority of Ammar ibn Yasser who said that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, sent me to a well and I met the devil in, a, in the form of a human. He fought me and I wrestled him down. And the Prophet وسلم, said, Ammar met the devil at the well and fought him. As soon as I returned, I informed him and he said that was shaitan. So this is another story mentioning the same thing. Again, it's not narrated in like the strongest of sources, but you take the general idea. Narration number eight. is very similar to that, but a different situation. Um, narration number nine. Let's see. It's actually similar to number eight. Narration number ten. Is the one we mentioned before. Ibn Saad mentioned in his tabakat when the Prophet set off for the battle of Uhud and he inspected his companions, returning those whom he deemed too young. He returned Samura ibn Jundub and permitted Rafia ibn Khadij. So Samura said to his foster father, Muri ibn Sinan, O father, the Messenger of God gave permission to Rafia and returned me, whereas I can defeat Rafia. So, so Muri ibn Sinan said, O Messenger of God, you returned my son and permitted Rafia, whereas my son can take him down. So the Prophet said to Rafia and Samura, wrestle each other. 
And so Samura took Rafi down, and the Messenger of Allah gave him permission to participate in the Battle of Uhud. And thus he participated with the Muslims. And we covered that narration before. Hadith number 11, the Prophet would inspect the young men of the Ansar every year. Whoever among them attained maturity, he would accept for military service. It's not really probably a good translation. Because as we said before, they didn't really have a, a conscripted military. right? So basically, every year these young people are getting older and older and older. The Prophet would inspect them and check them out and stuff. And then sometimes they would become capable enough that they could now have the honor of participating in these battles with the Prophet Samura uh, was assessed by him and rejected the Prophet and then he told him, O Messenger of Allah, you permitted a young man but rejected me, whereas I would defeat him, and so he defeated him, as we mentioned before. Uh, hadith number 12, on the authority of Abdurrahman ibn Abi Na'im, Na'man, Na'min, relates that Abu Sa'id al-Khudri was asked about performing prayer in one cloth. So he said, wrap it just as you wrap it for wrestling. So he used this as an example. Another way that you would cover yourself, cover yourself that way, and then you can pray with that garment. Narration number 13, on the authority of Ibn Abbas, he said that no one used to race the people of Mecca, except they used to beat them. And no one used to wrestle them, except they would defeat them. This was the case until they turned away from the water of Zamzam. Turned away from the water of Zamzam. So he's talking about that the people of Mecca were very tough. They could wrestle, they could raise everything else. On the authority of Abu Jafar, who said that Hassan and Hussein wrestled each other, the Messenger of Allah said, Come on, Hassan. Fatima said, It seems he is more beloved to you. He replied, No, it is because Jibreel is saying, Come on, Hussein, which we covered before. This narration, right? So, in this narration, the Prophet's grandchildren are wrestling, and he's cheering on Hassan. And his daughter Fatima says, Oh, it seems like you like Hassan more than Hussein. And he says, no, Jibreel, Angel Jibreel, is cheering for Hussein. So I was cheering for Hassan. Narration number 15 on the authority of Abu Hurairah, who said that Hassan and Hussein were wrestling before the Messenger of Allah and the Messenger of Allah was saying, come on, Hassan. Fatima asked, O Messenger of God, why do you say, come on, Hassan? He replied, Jibreel is saying, come on. Same. So same thing as before. There's 18 total, so we're almost there. May Allah reward you for your patience. Number 16. On the authority of Ali ibn Abi Talib, who said, The Messenger of Allah passed the area of funerals, and I was with him. Hassan and Hussein appeared and began wrestling. The Prophet said, Go on, Hassan, take Hussein. So Ali said, O Messenger of God, are you supporting him over Hussein? And he said, Jibreel over here is saying, go on, Hussein. So it seems like this happened more than once. Right? I'm going to skip 17 in order to not get into sectarian conflict. Actually, they're related to each other, so I'm just going to read them and take them for whatever we want. On the authority of Ura, he said, and Bedouin came to the Prophet وسلم, and said, O Messenger of God, wrestle me. So Muawiyah came towards him and said, O Bedouin, I will wrestle you. So the Prophet said, Muawiyah will never be beaten. Then the Bedouin was taken down when it was the day of Safin. Ali radiallahu anhu said, if I had recalled this hadith, I would not have fought Muawiyah. Allahu anhu. 
take it with a grain of salt in the ocean. And the 18th one is also similar to that one. هذا وصل الله وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم الحمد لله رب العالمين. That concludes these sessions on prophetic grappling. I tried to finish this text faster than I usually do, so alhamdulillah, uh, I don't overdo it on you guys, but I think that it's interesting. It's a little bit different than what we usually do. Uh, we ask Allah subhanahu wa taala to accept from us. So, anyone have any comments or questions or anything they would like to add to this or anything you'd like to discuss related to the topic? As I mentioned earlier, we won't have a session next week, okay? So no gathering next Sunday. Inshallah, no gathering next Sunday. So, uh, 